The understanding of alcoholism has changed dramatically over the last decade. So too have treatments for this disease. Today we will discuss the brief evolution of treatments for alcoholism and what is currently being researched for future use. Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Sujit Varma, Medical Director of Range Mental Health Center in Hibbing, Minnesota. Dr. Varma is a psychiatrist and recognized expert in addiction medicine. Welcome, Sujit. Thank you, Leslie. It's great to be here. Well, it's a pleasure to have you, and this is a topic I think most of us don't know much about. Uh, Can you describe for us the alcoholism treatment, say, at the turn of the century? Actually, let's go back a bit. Let's go back to the year 1949. That's when uh, a couple of uh, researchers in Europe found out that uh, there was a particular uh, medication called disulfiram. And disulfiram was actually used for a parasitic infection. They noticed that when they gave someone disulfiram and the person drank on top of that, they had this bizarre reaction. They started throwing up. They didn't like the alcohol. They started getting flushed. And then they realized that, hey, why don't we use this as a deterrent for alcoholism so that if someone's drinking, we can give them this medication. And that medicine is now known as antabuse. As the term indicates, ant means against, and abuse is abuse of the alcohol. Now, the advantage of this is it can stop you from getting alcohol into your system. So you take the pill, you drink on top of that, you have this violent reaction because of the release of certain uh, chemicals in your body that shouldn't be there, that are toxic, and you have this violent reaction. Now, the disadvantage is that anything that is alcoholic shouldn't be ingested by you. So if you are in the in the habit of putting aftershave on your skin, using perfume that contains alcohol, or if you like that chicken Caesar salad with vinegar on it, you're going to have what's called an antabuse reaction. So you need to be very careful about anything that has alcohol in it when you take that medication. And so that was the mainstay of treatment for a long time. Now, getting closer to the turn of the century, in 1994, in the United States, they released another product called naltrexone or Revia, that's R-E-V-I-A. And this was because they found out that the opioid receptors are very much involved in alcohol addiction. So uh, researchers said that, well, let's block the opioid receptors because apparently when you drink alcohol, you tend to stimulate the opioid receptors, release a lot of dopamine, and that causes this reinforcing or rewarding behavior, and that causes further drinking. So if you could block those receptors, then you could uh, break the cycle. So naltrexone was released in 1994, opioid blocker, uh, pretty good for controlling craving. Uh, you could still drink on top of it, but then you wouldn't get the buzz that you got out of it. The only disadvantage that is of major concern is because it blocks the opioid receptors, you cannot be on any kind of pain medication. So people with pain and alcoholism, probably not a good combination. Uh, The next thing that came uh, into the market was in the year 2004, and that's obviously in the 21st century. That product is called Camprol, or acamprosate, and that works through another mechanism called the glutamate receptors. They found out that too much of glutamate was too bad, so give a drug that helps with that, then you can also decrease craving. The only problem with this medication is that you have to give it several times a day. We talk about compliance issues. And it does help with craving. And then the last product that is FDA-approved for alcoholism was released in, uh, I think, April of 2006 called Vivitrol, which is actually naltrexone extended release. 
So Naltrexone was released in 1994. The extended release version of that was released in the year 2006. The advantage of Vivitrol is that you can give it once a month as an injection. So it takes away the decision of the patient to remember to take a daily dose, and it helps the patient stay focused on just his recovery goals. So in a nutshell, those are the main pharmacotherapies that have evolved over the last 50 to 60 years in the treatment of alcohol dependence. So we, we have the four treatments, Anabuse, Campril, Revia, Vivitrol. I, I think a lot of probably especially primary care physicians, and at least in my experience, also feel that many people drink to um, self-medicate, maybe their anxiety or depression, and if they prescribe an antidepressant, then perhaps that would help with the drinking. How do you think that works? Yeah, that's another very good question, Leslie. Uh, you know, as a psychiatrist, I've never actually seen a patient come into my office or on my unit and say, Doc, I have alcohol dependence and that's it. Uh, Usually comorbidity is the norm and not the exception. So I have a lot of people with bipolar, with depression, anxiety, and in addition to that, they do have alcoholism. And it's hard to say which came first, in this case, the chicken or the egg. Did the depression cause the alcoholism or did the alcoholism finally lead to loss of job and marital discord and lead to depression? So yes, that is a very good way to treat alcoholism. You don't want to just treat the craving for alcoholism. If they do have another medical problem or even a psychiatric problem, that should be addressed. And let me add a footnote here. You'll also notice that sometimes you have a patient who only has the alcohol issue, and I can give you an example of a case. I had a person, uh, actually, he had another problem too. He was bipolar, but he was also uh, polysubstance dependent, and alcohol was his biggest problem. I put him on one of those four medications that I mentioned, uh, and uh, he got the medication. He stopped the craving. His bipolar was getting better. But guess what happened? He had an underlying degree of anxiety, and now his anxiety started getting worse because he was self-medicating his anxiety with alcohol, and he didn't have any alcohol to control the anxiety. Mm-hmm. So now we actually opened up a Pandora's box and created another diagnosis. And, but in the end, we did treat his anxiety. It's better that his anxiety is treated by legal medication by a doctor than by self-medication with alcohol. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. Your host and with me today is addiction expert, Dr. Sujit Varma. Uh, Dr. Varma, so we certainly have some medications now available to us. Now, what about counseling? Okay, now that's a good question, Leslie. It's almost like asking me, what's the sound of one hand clapping? I mean, there is no sound. You need two hands to clap. And uh, we should never underestimate the value of counseling. Alcoholics Anonymous has been around since 1935, and I am a strong advocate of referring my patients to 12-step programs. If you look at a cross-section of the human brain, you would notice that there's a frontal lobe, and then there's something called the limbic lobe, which is the center of the brain. Uh, A lot of the decisions that patients make with regard to alcoholism involve these two parts of the brain. There's a drive generation, which is associated with the limbic lobe, and then decisions are made by the frontal lobe. It has been studied in research that if you give someone pharmacotherapy, it only controls the limbic lobe by adjusting the levels of dopamine and opioids and endorphins, whereas nothing is... uh, being done to the frontal lobe. The frontal lobe is a decision-making part of the brain. And in order to control those desires that are done through that part, you need to have counseling. And counseling just doesn't include Alcoholics Anonymous or 12-step programs. We've come a long way since then. I strongly advocate that. I also recommend referral to a psychologist or to a mental health center where they have other kinds of treatment like cognitive behavior therapy where they can change the way you think about it. Cue exposure therapy where they can change your uh, exposure to certain cues that trigger alcoholism, relaxation therapy to decrease your anxiety. 
which may increase when you're off alcoholism. Other things like uh, behavior therapy, family therapy, counseling. So yes, counseling in addition to pharmacotherapy is a dual problem. Uh, pronged approach to the treatment of alcoholism, and I'm a big, uh, I'm in big favor of counseling. Can you use medications without counseling? Well, again, that's like the sound of one hand clapping. You could use medication without counseling, but then it makes it easier, but you don't actually make it all that much easier. It's like telling someone, I'm going to treat 50% of your cancer. So medication can help with the craving. Medication can help with the withdrawal. Medication can help with some nutritional deficiencies, depending on what medication you're giving. But down the road, the medication is only controlling a part of the brain, the limbic lobe that is involved with that drive generation. We still need to do counseling. The counseling involves the rest of the cerebral cortex, mainly the frontal lobe. Because a lot of it is due to environmental cues. When you go to a certain environment where you normally drink, no matter how much medication you have that decreases your craving, you might suddenly slip and say, well, you know, I think I've been abstinent for two or three months. Let me just have one drink now. And that one drink may cause you to go down a slippery slope and end up in relapse and go off your medication. So I, again, uh, would like to reiterate a dual-pronged approach. Counseling, which affects the frontal lobe for the decision-making and pharmacotherapy for the limbic lobe. Either can be done by itself, but it's not as effective as the two together. Makes sense. What newer treatments are researchers looking into for the treatment of alcoholism? We are living in very exciting times, but I wouldn't go so far as to break out the champagne yet. (laughs) Uh, Researchers have uh, now looked into things like the serotonin system, and the serotonin system is involved with a lot of the antidepressants. We call them SSRIs or selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. So they're using uh, SSRIs not only to treat depression, but also to treat some of the cravings from alcohol. They've also looked into anticonvulsants. Now, anticonvulsants are used sometimes to help with the withdrawal from alcohol. And to name a few, there is Tegretol, there's Urontin or Gabapentin or Valproic Acid or Depakote. And uh, lithium is uh, also used, which is mainly used for bipolar disorder. And they found that giving people anticonvulsants and lithium has also uh, shown a decrease in the craving for alcohol in addition to treating conditions like bipolar disorder. There have also been some research in medications like Nemenda. Now, Nemenda, for those of you not familiar with it, is a medication that's been prescribed for dementia. Now, Nemenda is also made by the same company that makes Camprol, and they both work through the glutamate system. So again, Nemenda works through that glutamate system and decreases the craving through that system and probably would be a good uh, medication for someone who has dementia related to alcoholism. And even as I speak right now, I'm sure there's a researcher somewhere doing all kinds of research and adding more medications to this list. So I cannot give you an exhaustive list right now. Now, you mentioned the dementia often associated with alcoholism. Are there other treatments uh, for some of the comorbidity that we see with alcoholism? Yes, there's a lot of comorbidity, uh, and that seems to be the, uh, the rule rather than the exception. So, uh, again, someone with bipolar disorder, which is very common with uh, alcoholism, and again, I might have to give you an example of a patient. I did see this patient who was only being treated for depression uh, for the last five years. He was also an alcoholic. He was referred to me by a general physician, and I asked him a few questions. I asked him, uh, what kind of mood symptoms do you have? And he says, well, I'm really depressed sometimes, and then occasionally I get irritable. And then I explored that irritability, and he said, well, whenever I get irritable, I talk a little fast, and then I drink some alcohol, and then I get better, but then I get depressed after that. And then I explored that further, and I realized that he was actually bipolar, and he was self-medicating his bipolar with alcohol. So we never actually saw him get fulminant bipolar, and he was always being given an antidepressant. So 
giving someone with comorbid conditions like that a mood stabilizer like Depakote, Neurontin, Lithium, or Tegretol would control the bipolar symptoms but would kill two birds with one stone. It would also help a little bit with the craving for alcohol. Or even if you're going to have some withdrawal from alcohol, the anticonvulsants would cover for that. So that's one condition. Other uh, things that you could use for alcohol, if someone has anxiety with alcoholism, alcohol has a lot of uh, cross-tolerance with the benzodiazepines. And benzodiazepines are pretty effective for controlling anxiety in the short term. So I usually give them a short-term uh, course of, of benzos like clonopin. And at the same time, that control the anxiety so they do not need to use alcohol to self-medicate. But I know that down the road, even benzodiazepines can be addictive, and I try and wean them off them and do other kinds of uh, therapy like counseling, relaxation therapy. So yes, uh, there's always comorbidity, and if you can treat the comorbid condition, sometimes you can actually treat the alcoholism as well simultaneously. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Sujit Varma. We have been discussing the state of the art of alcoholism treatment. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.